This weekend, we have a privilege to look at the Bible's call to be baptized. I invite you to open your Bibles to your New Testament, to the first book beyond the four Gospels, the book of Acts, Acts of the Apostles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the book of Acts, which contains a lot of the early history, the first several decades of the early church. And this morning, we're going to be talking specifically about the call to be baptized. The call to be baptized. Just a brief word about my own story. I grew up in a home where my parents were believers, and I had an aunt and uncle who, uh, he was a pastor, and my parents told me that my aunt, who's a sweet lady, was always evangelizing me and was apparently led me to pray the sinner's prayer a number of times. I don't really remember it. But at age 13, I did go off to Spring Hill Camp in Michigan, and I distinctly remember being confronted with the gospel of Christ and my sin, not just my sins, my sin, and the need to repent. And I came home, and I remember very powerfully being in my bedroom alone right after that, the next day or so, and pouring out my heart to God, asking forgiveness for my sin confessing I am a sinner and I need a Savior, and then placing my trust in the Lord Jesus. And it was just a couple years later that I walked out into a lake where my dad and my pastor uh, baptized me in front of a group, and I went public for Jesus. This morning, we're going to look at the Bible's call to be baptized, and we're simply going to break it down into the essential ingredients, and that is, what exactly is baptism? And then secondly, why it's commanded? What is it? What's the significance of it? And then thirdly, very important question, when? When does it come? Does it come when you're an infant? Does it come later? Very, very critical question. So with that, let's dive in. Acts chapter 2. Here's the context in case you're not familiar with the book of Acts. It is the day of Pentecost, which is an annual feast in Jerusalem and among the Jews. comes about 50 days after their annual feast, Passover. And Pentecost occurs, it's recorded in Acts chapter 2. The Apostle Peter is preaching, they are in Jerusalem. He's preaching to a very large audience here, very large crowd gathered. There's been a movement of God's Spirit. And we're going to plug in right in the middle of his sermon. So actually what I'm going to be reading here is a sermon transcript of the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost in front of what looks to be a crowd of several thousand people. So we'll plug in in verse 32. God has raised Jesus, this Jesus, to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. There is your telltale sign that the Holy Spirit has opened somebody's eyes and their heart to the gospel. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, 
in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off and for all on whom the Lord our God will call. So for all that God will call, young and old, this is the promise the Holy Spirit will live in them. With many other words, he, that was Peter, warned them. He pleaded with the people, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And then we get the report. Those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Look at verse 38. Repent and be baptized. Those are two imperative verbs, both telling us to do something. So the Bible is very clear right up front. I know a lot of us come from different traditions uh, theologically and different denominations. Some of us don't even have a church background. So I'm going to try to just go back to basics here for a few minutes. The Bible is very clear that baptism is commanded once you're saved, but it's not a means of salvation. Our, even our own evangelical free church doctrinal statement is very clear that there are two different ordinances commanded by the Lord, the Lord's Supper and baptism. Neither, though, are salvific. Neither have anything to do with us actually being saved. How do you get saved? You get saved by repenting of our sin and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith alone, Christ alone, his shed blood alone, grace alone to the glory of God alone. Call those the solas of the Reformation. Now it brings up a question, what exactly is baptism? The words used throughout the New Testament, especially in Acts, also used in the book of Romans, and it's used in the Gospels. What is it? Well, the only way to answer the question is to go to the Bible. And some of you, so I'm going to do a very brief lesson here on uh, linguistics, just very quickly, and a little bit of what is going on in the New Testament. So a lot of you know, not everyone, but some of you know, the New Testament was written in Greek, Koine Greek, not classical Greek, not high Greek, Koine Greek, common Greek. And so anytime you struggle with, okay, what does the word mean, best thing to do to the, whatever ability you have is to go back. If you know Greek, that's one way, or check a Greek dictionary or check a commentary. And usually not too hard to find someone who is knowledgeable in a book form and ask, okay, what, what does exactly this word mean? So what's the word behind our English word baptism? And that's easy. It's the Greek word baptism. <laughs> it's it's, it's baptizo. It's present active indicative verb. I baptize. And it's, here's the point. In almost every English translation, in fact, in virtually, I don't know of any exceptions, English translations, the word is not translated. You say, well, it says baptism. That's true, but baptism is not an English word. It's a Greek word. So here's a little linguistics uh, uh, tutorial. There is a very clear difference between transliterating a word into another language and translating the word. Those two words sound similar. Transliterating, translating. Let me give you two illustrations of the difference. If I were to give you the Greek word agape, a lot of you have heard of the word, if you transliterate the word into English, you would take the Greek characters for the word agape, and then you would simply move them over and use English letters for the word. And so you would end up with A-G-A-P-E. That's not a translation. All you've done is move from one script 
Greek script to English script and just move the sounds over. That's transliterating. Then there's a, there's a place for it, but not in translation of the Bible so much. How do you translate agape? Well, you translate it, it's the word love. It's one of the biblical words for love. Let me give you one other example that most of you, or at least a lot of you, will recognize. The word logos. If you take the Greek word logos and the Greek characters for it, and you transliterate it, you end up with English letters L-O-G-O-S. Again, that's not an English word historically. It's a Greek word simply written in English letters. See the difference? Transliterating, translating. So that comes back to the question baptism, baptizo. What's, what does it mean? Well, if you transliterate it, it comes across baptism. If you translate the word, there's no doubt with linguists, there's no doubt with the Greek New Testament scholars, you can check virtually any Greek lexicon, any Greek dictionary. The word translates quite simply, immerse. That's what it meant. It was used in the first century that way. It was used. Like uh, you've heard, uh, there's a... Um, You've heard of dry cleaning. Well, in the first century, the rough equivalent of a dye, dye, dye person, even dyed garments or, or dry cleaning would be a fuller. They would call them a fuller, and they would dye garments or dip them. They were said to have been baptized. If somebody drowned, it was not uncommon to use the word, um, they were baptized, um, burying somebody, uh, to cover something up, submerge. Those are all synonyms of the word baptizo. That's the, that's the point. Um, again, transliterating, translating. Now, a lot of us grew up in a denomination, I did for my first 10 or 11 years, that did not immerse believers after conversion. They sprinkled infants. Some of you, a lot of you have grown up in such a denomination. The problem is baptizo, as I said, translates as submerge or bury or submerge or dip. And so it makes no sense linguistically or theologically to say something like, well, we immerse infants by sprinkling them. Or we immerse adults by, we submerge adults by sprinkling them. It, it, it doesn't work theologically. It doesn't work linguistically. Now, some of us, again, we say, well, but I didn't grow up with that tradition. For many of us, the concept of baptism by immersion, which we'll be seeing here shortly, is uncomfortable. Why? Because it didn't grow up that way. That's fair. Here's the, here's the deal. The question when it comes to biblical interpretation is not, well, how did I grow up? What's the determining authority when trying to answer a theological question, a biblical question, a doctrinal question, a moral question, an ethical question, it's to go back and ask, what does the text say? What does the Bible say? And again, the word is very simply translated, immerse or cover or submerge. Virtually everyone notes that. It's also interesting, baptism by immersion, immersion by immersion, <laughs> Submersion by immersion was common among Jews in the first century when Jesus lived. Uh, I often have a slide photo. I, didn't, I forgot to get it this week. There are what we call mikvahs that are all around Israel, especially they're concentrated in Jerusalem. Mikvahs were small pools of water cut in. Think of them as an early version of a jacuzzi, but they didn't have the bubbles and stuff. But it's about the size of them, maybe about eight feet by five by four, something deep. 
And they were used for immersion anointings, immersion baptisms. And you can find these all around Jerusalem and throughout, I've seen mikvahs in other parts of Israel. And they were used for two reasons. One, if a Gentile came to Christ, they would be baptized in the mikvah. Or they were used for Jewish ritual cleansing. But the point is, they are common, and archaeology keeps finding these things, especially concentrated around the temple. And that's interesting, because if 3,000 people were converted and baptized, the question is, how were they baptized? Jerusalem's in the mountains. There's not a natural source of water in Jerusalem. But we have found through archaeology, hundreds of these mikvahs all scattered throughout the area. It would have been easy then to baptize in these mikvahs. All right, brings us secondly to the why. What's the significance of baptism? And again, some of us know this. This is just a, it's a good refresher. It's a good reminder. Make sure we're all on the same page. In Paul's writings, if you turn to Romans chapter 6, the longest of Paul's 13 letters, he describes the significance of baptism as a beautiful picture of salvation. Not a means of salvation. That's key. Young people, I hope you hear that. It's not a means of salvation. Nobody has ever been saved by getting baptized. It doesn't add to the salvation. It's not part of salvation. It is simply a picture of salvation. We'll get to the when in just a minute. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Paul describes this. Or don't you know that all of us who were immersed into Jesus were immersed into his death? When you translate the word baptize there, it makes so much more sense theologically. We're immersed into Jesus, and we were immersed into his death. We were therefore buried, so that word works with it too, with him through immersion into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life. And so when you see our folks in a few minutes a lot of our young people getting baptized, it's a picture of being buried with Christ and then raised with Christ. That's what it's a picture of. Let me give you two other words what this is meaning. Public identification. That's what this is. It's somebody going public for Christ. The New Testament teaches this. First, I need to own my sin. I'm convicted by the Holy Spirit. In the words of Acts, cut to the heart when I hear the gospel presented. And then, once I am born again, then the Bible says I am to go public for Christ. I'm to go public for Jesus. That's what baptism is. And I do that by going underwater and coming up out of the water. It's a beautiful picture of baptism, and I'm publicly identifying with him. Which is why, by the way, this is very important. It's why baptism is so divisive in Muslim and Hindu cultures, especially. And I, I bring those two up because many in most Muslim cultures and Hindu cultures would be defined as traditional cultures as opposed to our more egalitarian, independent spirit kind of Western culture, individualistic when you get into most Muslim cultures or Hindu cultures, you are in a shame and honor culture traditionally, a traditional culture where clan and family are everything. And so in, in some senses, this is a little unusual, the, the, the coming to Jesus is actually less divisive because that usually happens sort of in private 
than the baptism. Why? Because the baptism is public. And to bring shame on the clan, on the family, on the village, is to commit, in many eyes, unforgivable sin. You don't do that. You do, it's hard for us in the individualistic West to even grasp that. But that is why baptism is often seen, really, as an act of treason in a traditional culture, like a Muslim culture, Hindu culture. Because the person, okay, you, 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 you added Jesus and now you're, you've, you know, you either added him to your pantheon of gods or you, you're now confessing a new God or a new, a new Lord. Okay, just kind of keep it down. But then the person goes public. And that is when the family is shamed. And so that is really viewed as an act of treason. Becky and I have had the privilege of seeing uh, baptism services in different parts of the world. And it's very interesting how different cultures baptize. I remember one in uh, Taiwan where the, the, all they had was a, a kid's swimming pool. I mean, it was only about this high. And they literally could hardly get the guy under the water. <laughs> we were out in a parking lot after the service. We all went out. We surrounded this thing, and we're all cheering. And they're trying to, they're trying to get him, like, under <laughs> the, the, the foot and a half of water kind of a thing. Uh, we were at one in, in, in Bosnia several years ago, one of the most moving that Becky and I have ever seen. And um, it was in downtown Sarajevo. And it was a baptism service. Couldn't understand virtually anything being said in Bosnia. And, but it was very interesting watching the, everyone came up around the baptismal tank. And it was joy and cheering. And, but I remember, we remember one young lady who, who, who said that her parents threatened to cut her off if she went through with this. The salvation had been one thing, but publicly identifying with Christ was viewed as unforgivable. And so you get, a, you get an understanding of, of the significance behind what's being done today. Each of these people today are going public for Christ. The price tag may not be as much as this young lady, may not be as much as some cultures, but there's still a price tag. They're going public for Christ, and we should celebrate that today. That's why these are one of our best Sundays, I think, when we hear stories of how people came to Christ, and we celebrate with them. All right, lastly, the when of baptism. This is a big question. Acts chapter 8. If you turn back to Acts. Acts chapter 8, the timing of the immersion is important to understand. If baptizo translates as immersion, submerge, or dip, which it does, it does not translate sprinkle by any means, and there's no Greek linguist that would say it does, then when, did it, when should it occur? This is a big question. Should it come before salvation when we're young or an infant, or should it come after salvation? And here the Bible again is very clear. Acts 2.38, Peter preached. He said, repent and be baptized. Be immersed, every one of you. Acts 2.41, those who accepted the message were immersed. 3,000 were added to their number that day. So, number one, there's no command to baptize infants, to immerse infants in the New Testament. Sprinkle or immerse. And secondly, there are no examples of infants being baptized in the New Testament. There are a couple instances where it talks about a family who came to faith and were baptized. We don't know who was in the family. We don't know if that just meant all the adults or some of the you know, younger people but we know of no record, there's no indication of an infant ever being baptized in the New Testament. There's no command, that's even a bigger thing, to baptize infants. The command is always 
after conversion. It's always repent and believe. And I want to look at three of those very quickly, and they're in Acts 8 and 9. There's three right in a row. Acts chapter 8, verses 12 to 12 and 13 is a sorcerer, a witch, who came to faith in Christ. This is Philip is preaching in Samaria and encounters a sorcerer. Verse 9 tells us it was a man, verse 9, named Simon, who had practiced sorcery. He boasted he was someone great. And if you look at verses 12 and 13, but when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom, God, in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. So, where are they? They're in Samaria. Who? Simon the sorcerer. What? Verse 12. When they, meaning the people listening, believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were immersed. Who? Both men and women. Why? Because those are the ones who profess faith. Simon himself believed. So this sorcerer believes and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great sights and miracles he saw. There's the pattern. Salvation, and then followed by public identification in the picture, buried, raised. The next one is just a few verses later, chapter 34. I mean, chapter, verse 34. A few verses later, verse 34 through 39, Acts 8, 34 to 39. This is a man from Africa, from Ethiopia. The eunuch asked Philip, please tell me, who is this prophet you're talking about? So Philip is riding along, comes across this gentleman who had a private scroll. That's unusual back then. These are very expensive. He's reading out of Isaiah 53, and then he happens, <laughs> I put that in quotes, this is obviously arranged by God. Philip meets with him, and this man reads this and says, uh, who is this? So he's reading a, a passage out of the Hebrew Scriptures, Isaiah 53, what is Isaiah 53 today, talking about Jesus. And he says, who is this? Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of me or my being immersed? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down. Notice the action. They went down into the water, and Philip immersed him. Then they came up out of the water. The Spirit of God suddenly took Philip away. But when they went on their way rejoicing. So notice again the action. I'm going to read it one more time. He gave orders to stop the chariot. Philip and the eunuch went down in the water. Philip immersed him. When they came up out of the water... Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Astuas. So he traveled on. But there, the baptism of a man, again, after conversion. Last one, the Apostle Paul, just two verses. Next chapter, Acts chapter 9, verses 17 and 18. This is Paul's own example. Paul is blinded by a vision of Jesus in what is today Syria, near Damascus. In verse 17, then Ananias went to the house and entered it. 
placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brothers, or Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, and he has sent me so that you may again see and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now notice verse 18. Notice, what, what a picture of salvation. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. What a picture spiritually what happens when someone hears the gospel and it connects and it resonates. A lot of you have had that experience. He got up and was immersed, submerged, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Or, we won't turn to it, Matthew chapter 28, Jesus sends out his disciples and he says, go make disciples of all, eth- of all ethne, of all nations, and then what's the very next thing? Baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Notice again, first, introducing people to Jesus, making disciples, then the baptizing after, and then teaching them to obey everything. So what's our summons before we see these baptisms? If you know Jesus is Lord and Savior, I know a lot of us here do. Not everyone, but I know a lot of us do. If you know Christ, if you've crossed over from death to life, if you've been born again, if you're one with Christ and his spirit is alive in you and you identify with Jesus, then the command, the very first command, is to be immersed and go public for him. Why? Because he went public for you. And he says, I want you to go public for me. It's not a, New Testament knows nothing of this, this private, secret little faith over here that doesn't affect life. It's about going public for Christ. And again, not to get saved, but as a testimony, we've been saved. And that means, friends, young people, hear this. Baptism is not a suggestion. It's not just a nice thing to do on our way to be holy. It's not an option. It's not a proposal to mull over. You don't even need to pray about it. Why? Because they were baptized same day in Acts. He preached, they believed, they were dumped. We just need to do it. Sometimes when the text is so clear, we get hung up on, well, I don't know, i got to think through it and pray. This is very clear. Jesus says, obey me. Very first command. And the Bible's clear. Obedience in any area brings blessing. And disobedience removes God's blessing from our life from our prayer life, from our ministry, from our family, from our finances, it removes God's blessing. And and, and the sobering question is this, if you have been saved for some time and not chosen to be immersed and go public, what blessings, what answered prayer might you have forfeited by a persistent act of disobedience over the years by not being immersed publicly? Good news is, we baptize several times a year. And we would love to have the privilege to do that if you know Christ. And now you're going to get to see live. This is better than reality TV. This is going to be live and center. And you are going to be blessed. Father, thank you for the call to be baptized. And the examples of baptism, Jesus himself being baptized. Thank you for each person, both in the first and second services today. All 13 who are stepping forward to be immersed and go public for Christ. May this be a great encouragement to all of us. We pray there would be many more days and months to come who would take this same step of obedience. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.